You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. For today's episode, we're going to revisit some of the the apologetics Q&A that took place at the recent Elevate Youth Apologetics Conference that we put on. So the idea was that uh, during the conference, uh, the young people got to vote for a number of questions and we looked at the top five questions, the ones which got the most votes, and we went through and we answered them in a live Q&A in the evening session. Now we're just having to re-record these just because we didn't have proper audio at the conference, but the material is the same. So let's jump straight in. One of the top voted for questions was this. How should we respond to Islamic terrorism? Admittedly, this is a very difficult issue and it can be a very confusing issue because a lot of the information we get from our culture or from our media doesn't tell the full story and it's it's slanted and it's biased in many ways. Yet, really since September the 11th, uh, the Islamic attack on um, the Twin Towers, these sorts of things have been, and particularly in the last couple of years, they seem to be a fairly regular part of life. We hear about them in the media and we witness them more and more around the Western world. So these things are increasing. And this is why we need to address this. Now, there are really two responses that immediately jump out from very different ends of the spectrum. You see, the first response is that we we react and we conclude that all Muslims are simply one step away from becoming terrorists. They're just waiting to become terrorists. Now, obviously, this is not true. The second response is that we completely disassociate it from anything to do with Islam and we repeat the mantra that Islam is a religion of peace. Now, people who study Islam today, Islamic scholars, both uh, those who are Muslim and those who are not, wouldn't really agree with either of these views. So we need to understand this at a more uh, academic level. We need some facts here. Now, bear in mind this is a, this was a, a short Q&A session, so there's only so much we can look into here. So we're going to have a little look at Islamic history because this is how we need to understand this. Now, you see the vast majority of Muslims are peaceful. There's no problem in saying that. However, I do believe that this does put them in a difficult position when it comes to explaining and understanding the foundations of the Islamic faith. You see, because the more or the more I look in and study Islam, um, you know, peering behind the veil of what is presented to us in the Western world and through the media, uh, the more it seems to be fundamentally at odds with um, the, the values that we hold as a Judeo-Christian society. Now, a lot of you will object to that term. I understand that. We consider ourselves a secular society today. However, the philosophical framework for our nation historically has been that of Judeo-Christian, uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview. So let's understand a little bit more of the history of Islam just to bring this issue into perspective. Now, you see, in the, in the Quran, there are both peaceful and violent verses that people can point to. And there's the debate about which ones take precedence over the others. To really understand this, we have to understand where they appeared in the chronology of Muhammad's life. And this is the issue we need to understand. So we're going to just go through a very kind of rapid and obviously um, not complete view of Islamic um, history here. So this, 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 let's start in the year 610 AD. This is not the birth of Muhammad. 610 AD is when Muhammad received his first vision in the cave in Mount Hira, just outside of Mecca. He became really the self-proclaimed prophet. Um, At this stage, he was reciting the words he believed were coming from the angel Gabriel. And after receiving these revelations, he invited the Meccans to embrace Islam. You see Mecca at this time, the Meccans at this time, obviously Islam didn't exist at this time. They were were really polytheistic and animistic tribes of this area. Um, each tribe obviously had a different god and there were, there were lots of gods at this time. Now, his message of Islam as Allah as the one true God 
was met with opposition and, and he was a persecuted minority in the beginning. 622, this is the, uh, the Hijra, as they call it, the, the Muhammad's flight to Medina. He fled to Medina. This is another town. These are both in Mecca and Medina in, in Saudi Arabia today. Now, at this time, he was making a living by raiding Meccan caravans. And one of these raids resulted in the Meccans sending an army to fight Muhammad and the Muslims at Medina. This is known as the Battle of Badr. It was a swift Muslim victory. And this, uh, this victory gave rise, gave impetus to the growth of Islam. 627 AD is the next major date. Now, I understand a lot is happening in these in-between years, but I'm picking out the highlights simply because of the nature of, the, of this short Q&A session. 627 AD, the Battle of the Trench. You see, Muhammad was now expelling Jewish tribes from Medina, and there was a Meccan and Arab confederacy sent 10,000 soldiers to deal with Muhammad. Okay, they were the Meccans and, and the, the Arabs at this time. They were getting a bit fed up with the growing power of Muhammad and these new Muslims. Remember, Islam was a new religion now, uh, spreading itself uh, over the, the uh, Arabian Peninsula, or just Arabia at this point in these days. Now, the Jews who were living in, um, in Medina at that time supported the Meccans and the Arab Confederacy, um, supported them in their efforts to try and get rid of Muhammad. So they were in league with them at various elements at this time. When the, the Muslims learnt that the Meccans were sending a 10,000-strong army to deal with them, they came up with some, uh, a very good military strategy, and they built a huge trench around the city. And this prevented, obviously, the attack. It would have been difficult to cross, and they would have been sitting ducks as they tried to do this. It turns out that when the Meccan army arrived and they saw this huge trench, they decided it wasn't worth it, and they actually retreated back to Mecca. Unfortunately, this left the Jews in Medina, who were in league with this confederacy, in a very difficult position, and they now had no protection. And it was, it was at this point that Muhammad took the opportunity to eradicate the last Jewish tribe in Medina, the Banu Qurayza, and his Muslim army. They took at least 800 Jewish men, and they made them kneel in front of this trench, and they beheaded every single one of them. This was known as the Battle of the Trench. You see, now Muhammad now had a complete Islamic state in Medina. And from this, from this uh, position of power now in Medina, he set his sights on Mecca. 628. This is the Treaty of Hudabaya. This is very important for us to understand. Muhammad signed a 10-year peace treaty with the Meccans. Um, and this, this had a number of stipulations that allowed him access to the Kaaba. Uh, you, you may be familiar with the Kaaba today. It's, it's where the Black Stone is. If, if you've ever seen uh, during Ramadan, uh, the festival, the Islamic festival today, the, the, the Black Square in, in Mecca in Saudi Arabia, this is the Kaaba. It did exist before it was an Islamic shrine. It was the, the, you know, the area of all the tribal gods before it was taken over by the Muslims at this time. But it allowed, the deal allowed him to go and use that with his, with his Muslims. And... And there was a few other stipulations in that too. However, what's important about this is that Muhammad used this peacetime to build his forces and within only two years, he was able to have an army of 10,000 people. And we need to understand this because the Treaty of Hudabaya is often referenced in parts of the world today as a model for diplomacy. Okay, we miss it because we don't understand the context. We don't really understand. We don't care to understand. You see, you remember when Yasser Arafat had signed the Camp David Accords. The first thing he did was, was, was go back on, on television to his own people and say he's done nothing more than what Muhammad did at Hudabayar. Signed a treaty to allow time to build forces. Okay, this is what happened. This is what happened. 
there was a small skirmish that happened during this uh, time of, of peace treaty. And Muhammad, I think some Muslims were killed. It was it was it was a very small a small skirmish at this time. Muhammad was outraged, and he now had the army to prepare it. So he considered this a violation of the treaty, and he prepared a ten thousand strong army to march on Mecca, and he gave orders to slaughter any resistance. At this time, the Prophet and the Muslim army they enter the city with little resistance, and the Meccans uh, quickly fall in line and convert to Islam. You see, Muhammad was now a prophet, a statesman, a legislator, and a judge. It's important to understand, Islam developed not only as a religion, but also as a social and political ideology. And this is where we have the beginnings of things like Sharia law. We're kind of taught that um, faith is a private issue, isn't it? Everyone should have a, a kind of secular, uh, non-religious area where all public life is played out. And it's okay to have faith as long as you keep it privately. That, I mean, that's what we're told in the Western here today. I mean, it, it's a nonsense, really. It doesn't work like that. But Islam did, never claims that that's their model. Islam is not only a religion, it's a social and political ideology. It, it looks to control everywhere. This is why we have you know, things like Sharia finances and sh uh, Sharia law courts all over the UK. Even though some of the, you know, they're not acknowledged, they do operate underneath British law, but in many cases, practically, you know, for their own communities, they are, they are the highest authority because it, it comes from, from Muhammad. Um, at this time, over this period, Muhammad had also now married um, 12 women. Now, I say these things because as we look to formulate public policy, we need to understand the history of, of Islam. There's a verse in the Quran, it's Surah 33, verse 21, and it says this. It says, You have indeed in the Messenger of Allah a beautiful pattern of conduct for anyone whose hope is in Allah and the last day. You see, this is an important verse because it says, this is why Muhammad is known as the, the excellent exemplar. Because you have in him a beautiful pattern of conduct for anyone who is a Muslim. The verse is fairly, you know, it's not a controversial verse. Everyone understands what it means. It's fairly clear. Yet, in light of this history, this should raise a few concerns to us, for us. And in the following history that we're going to look at just briefly now, raises a number of other concerns. 632 AD, that was the death of Muhammad. Now, the next period of Islamic history is referred to as Islam's Golden Age. Okay, it's the four successors of Muhammad, and these are these are the caliphs, and they are known as the four rightly guided caliphs. And it was an extremely violent period. Now, the first caliph was Abu Bakr. Now, he was one of Muhammad's earliest converts, and he was, in fact, Aisha's dad. Aisha was Muhammad's young wife. Now, as soon as Muhammad died, obviously, uh, a, a lot of the, the Arabs in, in this area, who had really been forced into Islam, they didn't have too much, too much choice at this time, they, 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 they saw the death of Muhammad and they thought, nah, we don't have to carry on with this anymore, surely it will die out. They began rebelling against their Islamic rulers. Uh, they refused to pay the taxes that were imposed on them and a number of other things. And this became known as the Wars of Apostasy, the Ridda Wars, the Wars of Apostasy. Many who refused to return to Islam were in fact killed. These wars occupied most of Abu Bakr's reign, and he did insist on dealing ruthlessly with apostates, and he followed, this was following the example of Muhammad. In the Hadith, Hadith 957, the Hadiths are the, um, the recorded sayings of Muhammad, whereas the, you know, the Quran is the word of Allah. Uh, the Hadiths um, are, you know, Allah is a lot of Hadiths, um, and they record the, the sayings of Muhammad and his followers. And in Hadith 957, it says this, Muhammad said, whoever changes his Islamic religion kill him 
And it's this underlying principle, which is why we see apostasy laws in many parts of the world today, why, why if you leave Islam or you become a Christian or anything like this, it's very dangerous. Um, sometimes you have to appear before a court of judges. Sometimes you'll you know, think it's even worse. It, it, it comes from this. This is where they get that from. Now, this was Abu Bakr's career. There were six bloodthirsty campaigns and all thousands of people were slaughtered. And it was an overwhelming Muslim victory in the Ridda Wars, the Wars of Apostasy. And they had now secured uh, Arabia as the base and the seat of Islam at this time. That was Abu Bakr. The second caliph was a man named Umar. And under his reign, Islam greatly expanded. These were known as the Wars of Conquest. So you had the Wars of Apostasy and now you have the Wars of Conquest. And from this period, um, Islam expanded out of Arabia, up into Syria, Iraq, and Egypt, Persia, and, and all the way over to Jerusalem at, at these times. So it, was, it rapidly spread out of the Arabian, uh, out of Arabia, all across the Arabian Peninsula and into these other, other places here. Now, Umar was in, was in fact, the second caliph Umar was murdered by the third caliph, a man named Uthman. Okay, so the second caliph was murdered by the third caliph. Third caliph was Uthman, who reigned from 644 to 656. Um, and the Arabs really at this stage had conquered as far afield as North Africa, into Turkey and into Afghanistan. Now, uh, Uthman was not a particularly uh, popular caliph. Um, it's said that he canonized the Quran, giving them the Median Codex the version that we find uh, today. Yeah, he was actually assassinated in his own home by a group of rebel Muslims. So you had the second caliph being assassinated by the third caliph, and you had the third caliph being assassinated by a group of rebel Muslims. And this led to the rise of the fourth caliph, a man named Ali. It's a very important, uh, this, this period of history, 656 to 661. Now, Ali was the cousin and son-in-law of Muhammad, and he was married to Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. He professed Islam at 10 years old, and he grew up in Muhammad's household. And historically, this is what we need to understand, this is the split of Islam into what we call, what we now know as Sunni and Shia. Sunni and Shia, it was to do with this Caliph Ali. You see, Ali was not universally accepted as the rightful Caliph, uh, and Muslims began to fight each other over this. You see, the Shias believe Ali was the rightful descendant. He was the, the, right, the rightly guided Caliph because he was part of the bloodline of Muhammad. And obviously the, the successor had to be a descendant of Muhammad. So Shias reject those first three caliphs and they go straight to Ali. Um, whereas the Sunnis today have a more of a kind of voting system for, uh, for, for the caliphs. Um, and this brings us up to the reign of Ali. Uh, and obviously um, their end was again in, in, in war. <laughs> this is the history and this is the foundation of Islam. It is called a religion of the sword for very good reason. And uh, these are not controversial facts I've given. This is just Islamic history. Um, we need to be aware of this um, in regard to the issue of civil and public policy on the side of Islam. Because again, you're not just dealing with a religion, you're dealing with a socio-political ideology. So when we make policy for a nation that involves these things, we have to be wise. Okay, We can't simply hide our heads in the sands. We have to understand these things. We, we should, you know, it's due diligence. We should, we should do this. Now, the other side of the coin for us uh, as Christians here, as we engage this issue, we need to remember the fact that we are ambassadors of Christ. We have a duty of conduct. We need to remember that all people need to hear the gospel. The gospel is a message that is available for everyone, regardless of, of creed, color, or political affiliation. The gospel and the words of Christ are for everyone. We need to continue praying for Muslims in the Muslim world. We need, we need to continue learning and understanding their culture and their customs. That's the least we can do. And we need to remember that love is our greatest apologetic. When you hear stories of Muslims who have come out of Islam and come to Christ, often you'll, they'll tell you 
that it was the love shown to them by Christians. It was when Christians started telling them about the love of Jesus Christ um, in compared to, to what they found in the Quran about Allah. So, so really, how should we respond? I think we need to be wise as we make civil, civic and public policy regarding Islam. If we're talking about how we act as individuals, we need to hold forth the gospel. It's the thing that transforms hearts and we need to make sure that uh, our, our speech is seasoned with grace and remember that the love of Christ is our greatest apologetic. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.